Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast arm of The Wider Project, where we still believe that another world is possible and that together we can create a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, and this week I have the great joy of speaking with someone who's been a hero of mine since my Schumacher days, one of the most articulate activists of our time and a proponent of regenerative small farms. So lots of boxes to tick. Chris Mage started off his professional life as an academic. He worked at the University of Surrey and then in the Department of Anthropology at Goldsmiths College. His focus then was aspects of social policy, social identities and the environment. And then 17 years ago, he gave up academia to walk the talk and became a farmer. And now he co-farms a fairly small acreage in Somerset, which, for those of you outside the UK, is in the nice southwest, almost the middle of the south of England. Chris writes the Small Farm Futures blog, which is one of those on my absolute must-read lists. And then in 2020, to my great delight, Chelsea Green published his book, A Small Farm Future, which forms the basis of this conversation. In it, he lays out the 10 crises of our times, which, when we put them together, create what we're calling the wicked problem of this moment in history. That's not a phrase we made up, that's one that's in general use. From there, the remaining three quarters of the book explore the ways in which rural localism can offer a way for humanity to see itself through the crisis that we face in both the global north and the global south. So I genuinely think that if you're interested in these fields at all, you're going to want to read Chris's book. And we're taking that as the starting point of the podcast rather than looking at what did you write, tell us about the book. So we're looking less at the why we need rural localism, because that's all in the book, and more at the ways of how it might happen, how it might work, how it might feel like when we get there. Along the way, we delve fairly deeply into the ways humanity has organised in the past, and we absolutely do reference Graeber and Wengrow's The Dawn of Everything, which is, as you'll know if you listen to any of these podcasts, one of the big light bulb books of the last few years for me. Chris has read it too, so we're able to look at some of the findings of that and then apply them not to how we lived in the past, but to recognising that we were able to self-organise in the past and therefore we can do it in the future. Which is, of course, the entire premise of this podcast. So, with great delight, people of the podcast, please do welcome Chris Smage, author of A Small Farm Future. So Chris Smage, superhero for a long time. I am extremely <laughs> grateful for you coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. Good morning. And how is it in your beautiful farm? Good morning. Yeah, well, great to be here. It's very nice. Weather's looking good. So um, good to go. Good. Thank you. If it's anything like here, it's feeling like April out there, which is lovely, except it's not April and we're not used to it feeling. Uh, it did feel like January last week. It was definitely very cold. <laughs> yeah. So I had a, a podcast question that I was asking everybody and we're into the second month of the new year and I've already abandoned it because I think there is so much that we could be talking about 
on small farm futures that I don't need the conversation lead in. We might ask it at the end. Instead, we're at episode 165, I think. So we have a basic premise of the current system is broken Mm -hmm. and we need to move forward. And reading your book for the second time, I made a list of everything that we're at the end of. And what I've got is we're at a post-carbon, post-growth, which is to say post-capitalist, post-industrial, and reading your book, realizing that probably means post-urban. And and certainly Simon Michaud would agree with that. A lot of the things that I'm exploring are saying that the big cities of today are over. I would like to delve into that a little bit because we had cities for the last 10,000 years that didn't run on carbon. Mm. Where are we going to be living is a big question. I think your whole concept of political economy and the way our current politics works is really interesting. And I would say our current democratic system is not democratic and needs to end. So we're at a kind of post-current democratic system Mm. place. And and in all of that, we're also at a post-industrial place. Given all of those are over, and you can question any of them, the next question is, so where are we going? What does it look like and feel like? And how do we get there? And I completely get. I've been asking those questions the past four years. And so far, everyone has said that's really complicated. We don't really know. (laughs) But it feels increasingly urgent that we at least begin to explore what might be possible and that your book definitely does that. So over to you. Where are we going? How do we get there? Tough questions to answer, but yeah, thank, thanks for thanks for asking them. And and um, you know, in, in some ways, I, I think you know the real thing is the, is the realization that that's where we're at. You know, I, I sometimes feel that I, I'm sort of talking to a lot of people through a through a kind of a, a screen. You know, where so often people are making these assumptions that the kind of you know, high energy, high capital, urban consumerist um, world that we're familiar with, um, you know, has a few problems, but we can sort of tweak it in this way or that way. And 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 then, you know, we're good to go again. So, you know, calling time on that is a, is a big deal. And I think, I guess where we go is, I think there's going to be more and more um, perturbations to, to, to all that, more and more systems in crisis things falling apart things that people expect to work not working and that kind of throws people back onto um you know having to make good themselves locally and and i guess you know i I guess my vision could be regarded as being um pessimistic or um you know sort of raising these troubling issues but i do have faith in you know in people's ability to come together and and get things done and sort things out if they're given the local autonomy to do that and and you know we can look at any number of examples from history so my feeling is when people realize that you know nobody is coming to help you the go- you know the government isn't coming to help you um the help is you and your household and your community um you know i think a lot can devolve from that and to some extent it's about land again it's about accessing land and producing the things that we need you know i I focus on farming um food and farming are are, are pretty key so it's about um learning to develop a, a a kind of local food economy and ecology again um 
And, you know, that's difficult to do from where we're at. The, you know, the key thing, I think, is to realise that that's what we need to do. Um, and then, you know, things politically can start developing out of that. But, you know, I think the first thing is the is the realisation, the, you know, realising all those posts that you mentioned, you know, it, it's kind of realising that that's where we're at. And, um, you know, we can't really revive the, the old system. We have to... Um, you know, we have to create a new one which is not going to be based on high levels of energy and high levels of economic resource. You know, the the the, the resource is ourselves and um, our localities, basically. Brilliant. Thank you. And Nate Hagens, on his fascinating Great Simplification podcast, quite frequently says degrowth is what we should do and post-growth is where we'll get to if we don't. Yeah. Which... And post-growth, probably not that much fun if we haven't planned with the degrowth. So could you and I make a best case scenario together of, let's say everybody gets it, a miracle happens and, and everybody gets it. I'm not expecting our existing government, they, they will be at the very end of the line of the people who get it, and they may be, still be the people kind of trying to nail their colours to the mast of, of infinite economic growth mm. and fossil fuel, everything. So let's Put them to one side. My thesis is that we have government by consent and we can remove that consent. We can do what they did in Taiwan and fork the government and just we could set up a different system and, and ignore the old one if we chose to. My absolute core belief is that it has to be done peacefully, but that that's not impossible if we have enough people with us. So let's make some core assumptions, which is we have enough people with us. We just need a concept of how to structure this small farm future that you consider in the book and what lives around it. Is this a thought experiment that you've done? Maybe take us, we could take ourselves 10, 15 years, maybe even 20 years to the future with the assumption that everyone is on board and we've created enough of a consensus around core values to carry the change that we need what would we build? Is that a thought experiment that we could do in real time? It's an interesting question. I mean, in, in the book, uh, Small Farm Future, I suppose I focus a little bit more on trying to think about, you know, how could that sort of consensus, how could that people being on boardness emerge out of where we presently are and I think it's um so I talk about you know this idea I, I talk about the supersedious state so I, I you know I kind of feel kind of as you were saying I think a lot of governments are going to hang on pretty tightly um to, to to where they are so it's like people innovating around the edge I haven't sort of I, I haven't kind of drawn out in a great deal of detail what I think that innovation around the edge will be, partly because I think I'm not too worried about it in the sense that, I, you know, I think people, you know, there's so many models where people have, you know, can do good things. And, and, and I, I didn't really want to sketch a kind of too much of a sort of future utopia. You know, I just wanted to engage in sort of where we might be going kind of out of the the present situation and but i mean we will have to develop new institutions new ways of thinking about land relationships um politics spirituality and so on um um yeah so yeah i i, I was sort of a little bit more engaged in the you know how we embark on that road rather than the, the destination as it were okay and, and that's fair i don't want 
utopias either. My entire focus at the moment is on what we're calling throughtopias. We, we, right. Rupert Reed said we could use his phrase, which is how do we get from here to there? Right. But my feeling is if we don't have a concept of what there is, we we won't get there because we we go to where we can imagine. Mm. And and it needs not to be a utopia in the sense my concept of utopias is there's always a gap. Something you know, Deus Ex Machina happens and everybody is in, in this slightly different future where which is basically what I was proposing to you, where everybody gets it and we're all moving. So let's take the step back, because I think it feels to me now that it is imperative that we begin to make the changes that you're discussing, and therefore people need to know what they are. So first thing I want you to do is explain about supersede your state, because that was a really interesting, the, the kind of the differences in how bees do things and then how we could do it differently. And then, so if we're heading for the future that we want, we need to start where we are. And and what I'm really interested in for the people listening to the podcast is that they have a concept of of the steps that we need to take, the actual grounded, granular boots on the ground. What can I go out and do this afternoon, having listened to this, that will begin to, to edge us microtome by microtome, tiny, tiny steps towards where we need to go? So... It feels to me that your book is really full of actual practical down-to-earth concepts. And I think I'm asking questions that are leading us to things that are more overarching concepts. How do we get to the granularity of actually what needs to happen? Assuming that everybody listening is on board, Mm. but we're lacking direction. How would you give us the directions, potential multiple directions in which different people could begin to move? Right. Well, I mean, I think we need to ground ourselves in our local ecologies. Um, You know, I'm thinking of Aldo Leopold, who famously said that um, humans are plain members and citizens of the biotic community. And we've got very used to being part of this kind of dematerialized, distantiated world of global consumerism and sort of high energy products. So, you know, the first thing is to ground ourselves in our local ecologies think about where our food comes from you know we spent and then you know i suppose another thing is we spend so much of our time in in an electronic virtual world think of yourself as an animal you know you're an organism like you know the birds and the insects and the plants and the trees so you know ground yourself in those birds insects plants and trees you know where where are they getting um their subsistence from where are you getting your subsistence from um and you know obviously if you if you live in the countryside, if you're a gardener or a farmer, you know, that leads to um, a certain set of questions and answers. If you're living in a in an apartment in a city, the answers are different. Um, but then, you know, that starts to prompt questions about, you know, food systems, ecologies, you know, politics. Um, and that's, I think, where we start, you know, start to think of yourself in an ecosystem that has to renew and sustain itself um, that's there for the long haul. And, you know, the reality is a lot of our human ecosystems um, don't really sustain and renew themselves and aren't there for the long haul. But, you know, sort of just getting, you know, getting your hands dirty, as it were, as, as, as a creature within a within an ecosystem, maybe then prompt some questions about, you know, well, what do I, you know, what do I need to do? What does my community need to do um, to, to, to improve that? Um, because yeah, that's where we're headed long term, whether we like it or not. So we have two separate sets of ideas there. There's the people who have access to land 
and, and some of those might be in a city, but most of them are going to be at least in the suburbs and probably more rural, who can begin to create food networks around where they live. And we could we could delve into regenerative farming. I always love delving into that. That's, that, that's an avenue we could go. But I'm also interested in, we now live in a world where most people live in cities. And it seems to me that that those are highly carbon dependent, fossil fuel dependent, and, and that this is not a long-term mm-hmm. solution. Have you thought through, this is probably not your field because you're a farmer and, and everything that you write is about farming, but how do we feed the cities or do we move everybody out to rural spaces and and what are the political implications of that and how do we overcome them? Right. Well, there's no easy way of saying it, but um, yeah, we, you know, we do move people out of the cities. You know, the the, the degree of urbanisation we have in the present world, as 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 I see it, is just completely propped up by um, high carbon. You know, it's a it's a recent manifestation of a fossil fueled world. I mean, I'm not saying there will be no cities um, in the future, but you know, I just can't see a way of um, feeding and energizing cities at the level of urbanization that we presently have i mean obviously we can have a sort of detailed conversation about energy futures and so on that a lot of this sort of stuff boils down to but you know that that's the reality you know historically people always go where um it's you know where where the people always seek prosperity basically and in recent times that has been urban largely but um you know through most of human history it hasn't been and i think long term you know we're going to be seeing people moving to um the most um productive uh lands either that or to or to cities that kind of control those productive lands so yeah the longer term future is is rural um and that obviously leads to difficult political questions and you know there's no kind of single answer you know everywhere is going to be different everywhere has its particular history of access or lack of access to land and 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 sort of political tensions i mean my general approach that i talk about in the book um it's it's a word that's um widely misused nowadays but i talk about populism in the sense of um a politics for the people you know too much of our politics is about you know this is this idea you know it's this kind of single idea whether it's you know um sort of nationalism or class struggle or market solutions you know we we have too many of these kind of single big ideas that um is you know going to solve all all our problems and the reality of populism is that um you know there is no one single idea it's kind of um uh, you know it's a big mess and jumble of people trying to figure things out and that's what we sort of that, that's what we need to try and generate because otherwise um you know it, it is a recipe for real conflict real violence you know real um struggle over access to resources and land um so yeah i that that's the way i see it going you know that trying to um prefigure uh good access to local resources in a way that you know isn't um doesn't just promote conflict between pre-existing groups there are going to be a multitude of options around the world and we can only really answer the ones in our locality but if we were to shrink our concept 
to the UK, possibly even to England. I, I speak as a Scot who, who desperately hopes for Scottish independence quite soon. And I think the Scottish government has some really quite radical ideas around this. They're already opening up mm. the crofting and you know the idea of the in-by being your bit and then the, the common land. And we could talk a lot about how to reconfigure commons so that the tragedy of the commons is not a thing. That might be quite interesting. The things that arose from what you were just saying that really struck me as quite interesting spark points, and we can decide which ones to go to, are what is the future of energy? So I, again, am quite taken by Simon Michaud, who's doing a lot of work on material flows and energy flows, who reckons that we have a 19 terawatt rolling global use of energy. At any given time, we're using 19 terawatts globally, and that we need to get to five basically, for to have anything approaching sustainability. And those five need not to be coming from fossil fuel sources. Mm. And that, that there's a huge disparity. The people in the what we now loosely call the global north, North America, European countries are using around, it depends, the figures that you've got in your book are different sets of units. The ones that I took on board are 15 to 16,000 kilowatt hours per annum in the global north. Mm -hmm. Yemen was 69. The Gaza Strip was 0 0.1. So there was a four orders of magnitude difference, depending on how you got your energy source and whether another country was actually cutting it off. And therefore, that getting to our five gigawatts rolling is going to be a different move, depending on where we are. We can't, we can't all drop by the same amount. And I wonder what a five gigawatt world feels like, terawatt world, sorry, feels like. So that's one thing. How are, how are the energy flows mm. going to be? The second thing that really jumped out was you said everybody seeks prosperity. And I'm wondering, have you read The Dawn of yeah. Everything, Graeber and Wengrow, which came out yeah. since Small Farm Futures? So it strikes me reading that, which really reconfigured. You know, if I'd read that before I wrote the Boudicca books, they would be really different. <laughs> and, and one of the really fascinating things, this is an aside, but that in the UK, we took up farming for a few generations in pre-Roman times and then abandoned it and, and went back to foraging hazelnuts from the forest, mm. which leads me to believe that farming was quite hard and or there were a few bad harvests and foraging hazelnuts was really easy, partly because <laughs> there were no grey squirrels and lots of hazelnuts, one assumes. Right. Um, and then we went back to f farming again. That seeking prosperity revolves around how we define prosperity because the... Wendat, the, who we call the Huron and, and James mm. Farnamore Cooper made very famous, lived in what they define as cities. I, I don't know what they looked like, but let's assume large, large sets of people who didn't have the hierarchies or the poverty that the Wendat found when they went to France. Mm. And they self-organized in ways that I'm assuming they felt were prosperous, but were completely on a different prosperity scale yeah. than the the Wendigo people who came in and destroyed them. How do we step back into that alternative sense of prosperity? So, that, so I've really got two sets of questions. One is energy futures. Mm -hmm. How do we get to an energy future that actually works in a way that doesn't leave lots of people destitute? And the other question is, how do we get to a sense of prosperity that actually works without leaving a lot of people destitute? And I think the two are linked up because our addiction to fossil fuel has shifted mm. our sense of what prosperity means. Yeah. One last bit before you start, 
which is I I go back because partly because I wrote the Boudicca books. My sense of capitalism is that it arrived in Britain with the Romans. They brought money. They brought this idea that a man owns, you know, women are owned by their fathers and then their husbands. And they brought the destruction of tribal living and this concept that everything, you know, we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Mm -hmm. So I would trace here back to how could we get back to the tribal living that happened before the Romans came as it being a potential model of a completely regenerative culture. But we need not to go back. We need to go forward. Mm. We, we're not ever heading backwards. That doesn't work. Mm. How can we move forward into something that has that level of cohesion in a way that leaves people feeling alive? Right. Wow. There's a lot of uh, big, big questions there. And I agree with you. They're all absolutely linked. I mean, one one way to link the energy with the prosperity question is sort of exactly as we were just talking about. If we're in a lower energy world, then you have to start looking to your local landscape to produce um, food and fibre, potentially energies um, uh, 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 and heat and, and so on. And that, you know, in, in a way, a lot of the problems that we presently have uh, with farming, you know, to do with livestock and over fertilization and, you know, all the rest of it, you know, these all arise from just having this surfeit of external energy coming into um, the local agro ecosystem. So we need to think about prosperity. I totally agree with what you're saying in a different way. It's not about money. You know, it's not about um, your personal command of other people or other organisms or the world it's about um you know what what makes you feel um kind of spiritually enriched ultimately and personally nourished you know food and spirit kind of goes together really um so that you know they're, they're totally linked um in in that way um and then, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I don't know an awful lot about um, Roman history and so on, but what you were saying rings true to me in, in terms of, um, you know, that kind of colonizer model of, of, of sort of generating ab abstract, you know, money wealth, symbolic wealth that as a colonizer, you know, you come in and reorganize everything, you know, in, in order to be able to extract and own. And so it's kind of thinking about that in a different way um and yeah i mean it's interesting when you look at um the way people organized you know you were talking about tribal living um you know it, I, to my mind something that I, I in fact i wrote a review of um graber and wengrow's book i thought it was a great book um i mean i i think you know there is there's always that tension i guess in history between the colonizers and the extractors you know that tendency towards symbolic excess which i think is very much you know one dimension of the human um you know human being the human experience versus that more grounded you know sort of building local institutions relating to your local environment you know relating to other people i mean my the way i often frame it is autonomy and community you know that we you know people are skilled livelihood creators and if you look back at, at british history you know there's there's a lot of evidence of of kind of small households with what you might call private plots but set within larger collective organization and um yeah so then connecting it to the last part of your question that 
you know, it's a real problem that we have with this kind of modernist concept of progress that, um, you know, is, it's about, no, we can't go back, we can't turn the clock back. I mean, that's for sure that's true, but part of the problem is that when we think about small-scale farming, uh, small farm societies, the models that we sort of have in our mind are always, you know, this 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 kind of, you know, it's not entirely false, this idea of a, of a grim hand-to-mouth existence in the past, but we tend to sort of make it into this big modern metaphor of progress that we've, you know, we've put all that beside us, thank goodness, you know, now we're living in cities, we've got all this energy and so on. Uh, and we, I think we just need to let go of that whole sort of spatial way of thinking about sort of progress forward or upwards into the future. You know, that it's not about trying to recreate some idealised image of the past. It's just the fact that people in the past lived in lower energy societies, figured out some of the ways in which they could generate food. Um, I mean, it's really fascinating. I think that you touched on that idea of commons. It's really fascinating the way that... Nowadays, we tend to attach on to technological ways of solving um, problems and limits. But very often, if you look historically, people solve these problems not um, technologically, but through social organization and, and not by not by doing away with the problem, but by learning to live with it. You know, how can we um, graze our livestock um, in a way that feeds the whole community, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, we can learn from all these um, past low energy pre-modern cultures, not not in this kind of attempt to um, to sort of be like them or, 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 or to, um, you know, vaunt them as somehow superior than us, but just because they, you know, they faced issues that we are now facing and they came up with some solutions which were not always high-tech, high-energy solutions. They were local ecological solutions. And it's that mindset that I think we need to keep cultivating. You know, how how do I how do I solve this as a local ecological problem? Um, and how do I seek prosperity? How do I seek wealth? Um, uh, you know, within my community, with other people, not in a kind of colonial way. I mean, I think all of the ways you frame that, I think, were brilliant. You know, um, uh, the Romans energy and time element and you know food again is at the heart of that once you know once you don't have cheap easy energy um, you know you need to start relating to the landscape in a different way and and like you say we forget the implicit work that fossil energy does you know like a a modern tractor is you know 200 horsepower say that's um, that's essentially uh, hang on what is it it's like a, a a person can sustain a, a power output of about 0.1 of a horsepower. So, yeah. So that's 2,000 people. Yeah, basically. Yeah, so that touches onto your point about people taking up farming and then abandoning it, you know, like cropland, you know, arable farming, if you don't have a tractor to do it for you, is tremendously hard work, whereas livestock herding or um, foraging uh, or, you know, tree crops is less hard work so um you only really um you know you i mean i think you know where we are in the world with the number of people that, that need feeding for sure we need crop you know we need gardens and small farms we need cropland but really um the focus is um as you know as, as little as possible and as much grazing and um and, and and sort of tree crop um perennial crop stuff as we can as we can get away with Brilliant. Thank you. Again, lots of directions we could go in. I'm remembering Graeber and Wengro 
many things struck me in that book. It was one of my absolute light bulb books. But they were discussing the three freedoms that they felt applied to the indigenous cultures that they were able to infer from. And as an aside, one of the things that really struck me in the book was them quoting, I think, Benjamin Franklin, but one of the great white men of the US who was who was deeply disturbed by the fact that whenever somebody had been extracted from the tribal culture into the white culture, either tribal people who'd been basically kidnapped or white people who'd been, quote, rescued, mm. they always tried to get back and from, you know, the civilization, which was prosperous and had guns and Bibles and railroads and, and all the things that obviously everybody would want. And they didn't. They wanted to go back. And, and when asked, they always said, because there is no fear. And that they were in this place where you, where you didn't have to get up in the morning and go to a job where somebody shouted at you. You just got on with your life. That was one of the things I think that really struck me again with the conversations between the Wendat and the Jesuits was the guy going, nobody tells me what to do. <laughs> and yet they have completely functional cities because they've learned how to communicate with each other in ways that were not hierarchical. Mm. So the three freedoms were the freedom to just leave, get up and mm. leave, the freedom to disagree, and the freedom to create a new social structure. And that seems to me that if we were to apply them here, mm -hmm. we would need a different political structure. So I'd like to move to talking about politics with you. But one of the things that really struck me in your book was the awareness that in the past within our if I'm extending, extending capitalism for 2,000 years, which is still a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of you know, 300,000 years of, of modern human existence, as opposed to Paleolithic existence in, in different forms. So Homo sapiens, 300,000 years. 2,000 of a part of Homo sapiens, not even all of it. it, it we didn't colonise the Australias for quite a long time. We didn't colonise all of the Americas. There were people living perfectly happily not in a capitalist system. When we begin to impose that, then we begin to create political structures that tell people how to behave. And as a, a, a not heterosexual, not man, growing up even in the late 20th century in a tiny little village with the twitching net curtains, it was not fun. <laughs> and I do not ever want to go back to other people having the power to tell me who I am and who I could be. But I'm also very aware that mm -hmm. two centuries ago, as a, a not heterosexual, not Christian, not man, I would have been dead quite early in a very nasty way because that was completely unacceptable. It wasn't the nobody tells me what to do of the indigenous tribes. So in our moving back to rural localism, what interests me is how do we create the culture of of what was essentially a kind of libertarian communism, as far as I can tell. But it functioned because everybody supported everybody else. And I am really curious And how do we create the political structures that get us there. And you strike me as the kind of person who's thought about this quite deeply and might get us there. So that's one option. And if you think, no, actually, I don't really want to talk about that, then, then I would really like to look at the how do we feed the world without intensive agriculture, which is a whole separate avenue. So you get to pick, Chris, which way would you like to go? <laughs> well, they're both interesting, interesting questions. There was something you said about the Graeber. What was your original lead in to Graeber? Sorry, um, the, the three freedoms. The three freedoms and the people wanting to go back. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd want to pick up on the autonomy point there. And I think there's, um, there's a kind of a, a degree of 
what uh, someone on my blog called learned helplessness in um, in modern society. You know, where we kind of think that um, uh, you know, it's almost like we don't want that autonomy. We don't want to um, uh, sort of have the responsibility of cre creating a livelihood because we, you know, be because we're fearful, because we're, you know, we're. Um, we're sort of scared of that reality. So, you know, that's something that I think we need to transcend. So politically, if we wanted to move towards the Graeber and Wengrow kind of living where nobody tells us what to do, and yet we have a fully functional society, quite a complex society, mm -hmm. as opposed to my terror of the indigenous peasant societies of our witch-burning past, which leaving aside that the historic, historicity of that is not necessarily accurate. It was still, mm. there were certain ways to behave and if you stepped outside them, you were in deep, deep trouble. And speaking as someone who would have wanted to step outside of pretty much mm. all of them, I don't want to go back to that. So how do we create communities where the people driven by the need to control don't get to hold the control? Right. I mean, it's a really, yeah, it's it's an interesting and really difficult one, uh, and it is something that worries me. I mean, you, you mentioned the kind of uh, curtain twitching <laughs> that can go on in a small rural community. I mean, I think there is that part of human life to some extent. Some of the, you know, some of the most nasty manifestations of that, I think, historically, are when you have a kind of centralizing power. Um, you know, whether it's. Uh, religious or political that is trying to extend its um its kind of reach into daily life i mean things like you know the the the, the inquisition and so on you know it uh, you can you can frame it as religious intolerance but actually it was a kind of state religious project to infiltrate daily life and you know my feeling is that we're going to uh, you know maybe the the most positive spin on this is that in the future i think there's going to be a lot of skepticism about the state you know if you think of you know news stories today say about the collapse of the nhs i mean you know what do we expect of the government we're paying our taxes you know we expect the government to lay on some services it can't even do that you know why why should i take it seriously that then creates some space to um, generate, um, you know, to, to self-generate from the bottom up different institutions. There is a danger there because part of, you know, there's definitely that part of, of humanity. You know, there's there's a danger of patriarchy. There's a danger of, um, you know, various forms of domination and control. But, you know, there's also that history that that, um, that Graeber and Wengro talk about where people, um, you know, find their way out of that. And, you know, and it can take time, it can take generations, it can take um, unpleasant conflict, but, you know, people can do it. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting, I think, because we're sort of, you know, we're talking about collapse, um, that, you know, the, the history of previous collapses generally are written by the people who had the most to lose in the collapse you know they were basically the sort of literate men saying oh god this is awful you know everything's um going you know falling apart but often the ordinary people were like great collapse you know i'm not being uh, you know i'm not having to pay so many taxes i'm not being screwed by that you know and people sort of figure out a, a meaningful local life. I mean, I don't mean to paint too rosy a portrait of it because I think you're absolutely right. There's always that, um, you know, there's always that sort of power and 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 desire to dominate other people is always potentially in, in play. I suppose what I would say is we need to stop thinking that um, 
somehow the government or centralized power is going to protect us from that. I mean, I think increasingly it won't. Increasingly, we're going to see forms of, you know, essentially fascist um, authoritarian government that's, you know, trying to demonize certain people. You know, we're seeing it already, you know, the whole the whole narrative around migration would be a case in point in, in, in the UK and, and globally today is that people get demonized, you know, um, governments hang on to power by, uh, you know, that kind of inquisitorial process of, of, of infiltrating themselves in daily life and trying to, you know, trying to um, control the narrative. So I think, you know, there's a lot of potential for people to get out of that getting out of it doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be other forms of of local power plays going on but you know i think the the, the sort of the the lesson of big history is that people can innovate their way out of that um you know it doesn't always happen and it's not always easy um but it's certainly i mean i would certainly pin my colors to that kind of um autonomy and and and, and sort of liberatory um approach exactly those three freedoms that you mentioned I, I think it's so important for it to be possible for people to walk away from a situation and to you know to, to go somewhere else be somebody different um you know that i hope is something that that, that can be achieved um and you know it's um i'm thinking of a book like rebecca solnit's a paradise built in hell you know it's really interesting her stuff about when people are faced with these disasters you know, they tend to come together and innovate and work with each other, often working with people that they might not have done in in, in, in normal life. And it's usually that kind of top-down power that gets in the way of that. Obviously, a, a disaster is an unusual situation that doesn't last forever. So the real challenge is how do we how do we routinize that? How do we make that chronic? Um, um, but, you know, there, there are resources within the human condition to do that. And that's what I think we need to amplify. Excellent. Okay, so politics is my one of my many obsessions, but I am talking to a number of other people on other podcasts about that. So let's let's fork away. Forking being my favourite concept at the moment <laughs> of taking a, taking an idea and just splitting it off, and let's fork away to how we feed people. Really, the core of your book, Small Farm Futures, it, it says it in the title, yeah. but there is still a lot of conversation in the world around allocation of land and then what we do with the land. And that, again, there are extremes from the regenerative farming movement, of which I am definitely a supporter, which says we can feed people in in proper ways with good nutrient-dense food. I'm just reading What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health, which is fantastic. And I discovered that Singing Frogs Farm, which is nine acres, of which two and a half acres is down to vegetables, um, and the rest is just wildlife and ponds. They make $100,000 per acre on their regenerative no-till, no, no chemicals land. The local organic areas make at most ten to $20,000 per acre. So we need to change the economic system. That's, that's a given, and it, how many dollars is utterly irrelevant. But the capacity to feed people regeneratively seems to me huge and is in total opposition to the eco-modernist, techno-modern, we just need a vat in every village providing the gloop to mm. feed people and then we can just rewild everything and it'll all be fine, which strikes me as frankly insane. So let's, <laughs> but, the, but, but you're the guest, you can, you can answer any of those. How are we going to feed 
the people of the world in a small form future? Right. Well, I suppose my starting gambit is would be that it's not as difficult as people might think. I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's not as difficult as you might think in the sense that, you know, I think we have this narrative that modern, you know, very high tech, modern farming, um, you know, has, has, has solved all these problems. And if we, you know, go back to um, a, a kind of lower energy input, lower tech farming, uh, it'll be harder. I mean, it's not that hard to um, produce food to feed yourself. You know, what's hard is is to erect this sort of massive modern society on that base, you know, with having a really small number of people doing it and, you know, sort of surplus generation, you know, going, going back to your point about the Romans, basically. Um, so, uh, and, you know, there's, there's sort of interesting studies. I mean, it's a whole complex field, but there's the so-called inverse productivity relationship with um, small peasant farms um, in, you know, in the global South where um, actually, um, in terms of per per area per acre output, um, small scale uh, low input peasant farming can be more productive um, uh, of um, you know if you measure it in terms of wealth or calories or or nutrition or or productivity per water input. Um, you know modern agriculture uh, it's great at, at producing a lot of food without much labour input. Um, on the farm but it's not necessarily that great at anything else it's not necessarily that great at per acre productivity you know which is why it tends to um spread out into places where it probably shouldn't be spreading out to i mean obviously we've got the issue of urbanism that we talked about earlier when you've got so many people concentrated into a city you know obviously it would be hard for the people of London um, to feed themselves just from the area of London. But if you spread people out more generally into productive landscapes, it's not that hard to feed yourself. You probably need to spend more time. You know, the average person spends uh, very little time feeding themselves other than a trip to the supermarket. So yeah, you have to spend more time that that becomes part of your life. That becomes part of your livelihood and that goes back to the conversation we were having about autonomy and, and freedom and prosperity you know how do we measure those things um and you know for some people producing your own food certainly for me you know having a garden you know i, I mean I, I i'm less autonomous than i'd like to be i guess but that you know certainly is meaningful to me you know to to, to produce food you know there are questions about um you know you know that we've got an awful lot of nitrogenous fertilizer sloshing around in the world you know that increases yields it also creates all sorts of terribly negative um ecological impacts you know can we do without it um you know there's there's arguments either way you mentioned the the gloop in 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 vats i mean that's a whole other front that's opened up in in um these discussions recently that i've i've been doing some writing about at the moment actually and um you know what's for sure is that there's not going to be a a, a gloop factory in every village you know it's going to be another top-down kind of corporate biotech solution which we don't really need it's a solution I mean, my argument and again there's all sorts of complexities to it but my argument is that it's a kind of uh, non-solution to a non-problem um you know what we need to be doing is rethinking prosperity rethinking livelihood rethinking human geographies um and uh you know so and basically feeding ourselves 
is not that hard. And in fact, uh, you know, if you look at the sort of the global um, the, the global diet, you know, we've got this kind of industrialized agriculture that really homes in on a very small number of crops. You know, wheat, rice, maize, soy the four big crops globally and obviously you can process them and um, and, and you know some oil crops in there as well um slightly lesser land area and it's you know it's uh, i mean those crops are great in and of themselves i mean i love bread and pastry and so on you know but um we, we've got far too much of that and not nearly enough of uh, fresh fruit and vegetables and you know then you get into this whole kind of class debate people say oh you know it's you know you sort of middle class lovely wanting to eat fruit and veg i mean it's like a real scandal of the modern world that fresh fruit and veg is almost like this kind of luxury middle class um, feed you know that's what we evolved to eat you know we need to be eating fresh whole foods and we can do that that can be generalized you know we can have societies in which pretty much everybody is taking care of 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 providing that for themselves and for, for their communities so yeah it's not hard to feed ourselves we just need to think about it in a different way brilliant so much again in that a non-solution to a non-problem i'd really like to dive into that a little bit further because it feels to me that this is at the crux of really different worldviews of how we could progress forward so what I kind of knew, but I'm learning in much more detail from what your food ate, is the extent to which things like nitrogenous fertilizer and, and the concepts of you alter the pH of the land, you chuck lime on it if it's too acidic, basically. You do potassium and phosphorus and nitrogen, and then everything grows. What we were creating was plants that are being fed empty calories, and then they create people who are being fed empty calories because the micronutrients and the bioflavonoids and all of the things that we didn't know existed 150 years ago when we started turning oil into food are actually really important. Mm -hmm. So the wave of type 2 diabetes around the planet of people who are being fed endless empty calories that don't actually contain what they need. So they're in one sense starving to death while in the other sense becoming obese. And we're doing that because we're creating crops that are in themselves kind of big and fat and lacking in essential nutrients. And that the this bizarre idea that we're going to create factory food gloop to feed people and it will somehow provide all their nutrients and that they'll like this and that we've also somehow miraculously managed to create uh, energy out that somehow will be more than the energy in, which is, as far as I can tell, a perpetual motion machine. Because the energy comes from somewhere. And I read something on Twitter the other day. I backed out of that thread because it was so distressing of going, oh, don't worry, we'll only run the factories when the sun is shining, so we'll be using renewable power. You, you're actually, that you are just going off the edge of insanity because we will need every little, if we're going from 19 terawatts to 5 terawatts, and you're suggesting we use a serious percentage of those 5 terawatts to create food, when we could be using sunlight and grass. Are you out of your tiny minds? So, <laughs> sorry, that's my rant. I'm sure you have a slightly more, less ranty and, and more educated bit on that. But could we look at the non-solution to the non-problem and look at, give people a little bit more granular stuff around, yes, we can feed ourselves, because I think this is going to become one of the big conversations that we need to be holding. Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's there's a long history of um, essentially a sort of government corporate 
attempts to take hold of the food system and to present it as a sort of solution to problems that people didn't necessarily have. I mean, the Green Revolution would be a great example of that, where it's presented as as kind of feeding the starving, but that, you know, that there was never really a problem of hunger that was caused by lack of enough um, you know, rice or wheat, it's always a kind of political distributional problem. Um, and, you know, the, the result of that was was very uh, sort of fertilizer and pesticide dependent crops that, that, that benefited richer farmers to the detriment of poorer farmers. And it, there's a great book about that, actually, I read recently by a guy called Glenn Davis Stone called The Agricultural Dilemma. And he talks about that historically, going right back to the 19th century, the the, the people that first figured out the uh, plant nutrition requirements and the need for nitrogen and how that kind of you know there was sort of from the early days um, a, a kind of revolving door between basic scientific research and corporations and governments worried about food security and conflict with other governments and so you know it all kind of gets wrapped up in that um, and the result very often is to just take from ordinary people the ability to produce some good basic food locally which is not that hard to do um but yeah in terms of uh, manufactured food you know this this new idea of having um kind of steel bioreactors that produce um you know a, a bacterially produced protein rich food um yeah you know i've been looking into it a bit lately i'm doing some writing that hopefully will see the light of day soon um but yeah to my mind energetically it doesn't add up for exactly the reasons that you were saying if you think that we're going to have limitless um low carbon electrical energy in the future then possibly and the advantage of it is that uh you can produce um food on a small amount of land and you know so there are some people articulating that around issues about um uh, sort of wildlife benefits, kind of rewilding and uh, and so on. But yeah, energetically, it doesn't stack up. Um, like you say, you know, free sunlight versus generated energy, thinking about your five terawatt world, you know, it doesn't stack up. And it doesn't stack up um, in terms of the, 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 the sort of political economy of it in the sense that, you know, although the food sector has been very corporatized and industrialized, you know, it, it, it hasn't been corporatized as successfully, say, as the manufacturing sector. I mean, you know, if you buy a car nowadays, uh, you know, there's basically no car industry in the UK. If you buy a computer, you know, these are kind of global, globally concentrated industries. You know, the food industry is very corporatized, but yet you only have to walk around your neighborhood or walk around the countryside. You see people's back gardens, you see allotments, you see small farms, the kind of small farms you mentioned earlier. There's a lot of productivity still within local hands. If you industrialize that, you know, there's that, you know, you, that basically um, you then get onto a, a, a kind of um, conveyor towards um manufacturing concentration that is you know there are not going to be small little gloop factories in every village that's not not how the industrial farm sector works so i think there's quite a lot of of kind of um sort of corporate messaging around that about it being a solution to a sort of ecological crisis a solution to food crisis and that's not where the narrative is really coming from at all it comes back to your uh, Graeber and Wengro, you know, it, it, it comes back to autonomy, to freedom, you know, to not, not having that capacity 
taken away from us by um uh, you know the, the the false assurances of 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 the people that you know who's who's benefiting from this you know um is always a question worth asking you know yes qui bono definitely yeah because even if the gloop factory were somehow owned in common by the people in the village it's it's still i i don't think the material flows stack up i i'm getting quite interested in how much actual stuff there is in the world and how we transport it around and what we do with what's left and the need for carbon to both produce it and transport it and then we're basically back to not having that stuff and if we've yeah. got all of our food dependent on the steel vat in the center of the village what happens when it breaks and there's no more steel vats it's bonkers frankly yeah i mean that's another that's another aspect you know like we are very dependent on these these very precarious global supply chains you know any kind of manufacturing process is um you know i don't think um it's not a great idea uh, to use an agricultural metaphor to put all our eggs in one basket, you know, and 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 kind of assume that um, you know stainless steel. You kind of think about. I mean, that's quite an interesting parallel, really. You know, the the uh, root nodules of a legume, like a, a pea or a bean plant, mm. that's a bioreactor. Um, and then and then you think about a stainless steel bioreactor. You know, which one is more renewable? Which one is easier? to um you know to to control locally uh, there's 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 just no comparison basically yeah and the whole of the soil is a bioreactor the whole of Elaine Ingham's work of of you know the the fungi right. are the ones that mine they go down and they get the molybdenum it doesn't matter if we're told we haven't got enough manganese in our soil if we get the biome right the fungi will get the the manganese in a form that that the plants need and it will be there to eat i think some of the figures in this book the what your food ate of the so the iron content of broccoli now is like three percent of what it was a hundred years ago. It's insane. Yeah, I think some of those figures are, are, are interesting. And again, there's this kind of process. That there's a, there's an element of this kind of progress narrative and this hubris that you know that we as humans can control this better than being um, you know part of a local ecology can. So that we then are taking the responsibility on you know if we're producing manufacturing food and, and you know the manufactured food it's the same really with um you know ev even with farmed food that's um you know when we rely too much on a narrow range of crops that's sort of at, at the behest of, of of industrial processes um you know we we are sort of assuming the responsibility of the whole ecology the whole biota to to uh, you know to get all those kind of micronutrient balances and and, and all the rest of it right and, you know, I don't think we really, we don't really know enough and we're not, you know, we're not really sort of clever enough and we're not, we don't have enough resource to really get that right for everybody as compared to, you know, just being a, 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 a part of a more diverse local um, biota. I mean, I'm not saying that, that, you know, that that necessarily answers every problem, but it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of letting go of that kind of dream of industrial control, I think, is quite important um, in terms of having, a, a you know, a more nourishment um, and, and, and sort of trusting, um, trusting to the ecology a little bit more, including the human ecology. Yes, and human creativity and the human capacity. Once we all set our values, realise that we've got common values and then that we can Believing that we can and not looking at the past and seeing the ways that we couldn't, I think, feels to me really important, particularly with politics.
but that's that's a whole separate conversation. Right, right. Um, I one of my students used to always have a footer at the foot of the email saying the people who are saying it can't be done should not get in the way of the people who are making it happen, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that seems to me to be quite core to what we're doing. So we are definitely heading to the end now. And I'm just about, I'm going to ask you the question that I was going to ask at the beginning, because it feels like a good way to end, of what makes your heart sing right now and where does it take you as an ending? So include anything you want to say to people, go. I suppose, you know, what makes my heart sing um, is kind of being on my farm and, and seeing the natural bit being part of this bigger ecology that I think so many people don't have that opportunity um, to experience and just you know there's a sort of argument that people and wildlife don't mix but you know there's more people on my land than there used to be before we came here and there's also more wildlife and just being part of that and seeing it uh, doing its thing and just learning in all sorts of little ways that I couldn't even necessarily explain or put into words just being part of that bigger story you know that that you know I find that incredibly uplifting and and energizing fantastic yes i would agree with you if i could spend every day at the vegetable garden not that i know what i'm doing at all but i'm learning it's it's inc- it just <laughs> is there's something so fulfilling about planting a bean seed yeah. and then you know 9 months later having bean stew it's amazing it's just miraculous every time. It's like it's like yeah, yeah. having lambs born and you go, oh, new life. They're gorgeous. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. It's been really exciting and interesting. And it does feel to me that we're right at the, the edge of the thought processes. But if we don't think to those edges, we won't we won't get there. And definitely I would encourage people to read your book because it explains not only why we need to get there, but also what the edges are. And, and how to think through them. So I hope we have in some way managed to articulate that and take it a step further during the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks very much, Amanda. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Chris for everything that he's doing and for his capacity to think broadly and to apply the thinking in so many different directions And with such generosity of spirit, I am well aware that I can get quite cross with quite a lot of people and my capacity to look at things in an even-handed way is probably not as good as it could be. And one of the many, many striking features of Chris's book is his ability to look at both sides of any argument with really clear critical thinking. Even if you're not interested in farming and the future of how we could live, which would surprise me if you weren't. But even if you're not, simply as an example of sane critical thinking, his book is well worth a read. So there will be a link in the show notes and I completely recommend that you read it. So, as ever, we'll be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, enormous thanks to Caro C for rescuing the sound yet again and for the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith Tillery for the website and the conversations that absolutely keep us flowing and for helping us to sort out the extraordinary new range of grant proposals on the small holding, which seem, as far as I can tell, to be designed explicitly to run small farmers out of business so that the oligarchs can use the money that's sitting in the offshore accounts to buy the land. This is not good 
I'm not entirely sure how we stop it, but changing the entire political economy seems like a good first move. That apart, huge thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcripts, and, as ever, enormous thanks to all of you for listening. We absolutely would not be here without you. And, much as I love the five stars in our review, and am now aware that it's not just good for our egos, though it is good for our egos, And if you have time, five stars in a review seems to be a really good thing. But passing this on, finding the people who care, finding the people who want to be at the leading edge of change and who frankly get that we are now heading for a post-carbon, post-urban, post-capital, post-growth, post-industrial future, and we need to be planning for it. Find those people and please send them the link. It's the best thing we can do now is to gather those who get it and begin to thinking of all the ways forward. So that's it for this week. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye. Goodbye.